0: Welcome to the Flicks and Scoops podcast, I'm Ash and I'm smooshing together films and ice cream because I seemingly have nothing better to do. Guest selects a film, I make a film influenced ice cream, we talk about the film and eat the ice cream. This one's been a couple of months in the making, the plan was to record when I was at home but I had to get out of dodge while getting was good but we finally made it happen. On this episode I welcome an old friend, writer, playwright, Content creator, Matthew Greenoff. We're having a chinwag about Chris Morris's Four Lions. For this one, I went with a sugar puff ice cream, details of which will all become clear in the episode. Four Lions is a tragic comedy about a terror cell from the north of England who are hell-bent on committing atrocities, but basically can't help but get in their own way. This is a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Four Lions and you want to check it out before enjoying this episode, then I'd recommend it. But even if you have seen it before, watch it again, or I'll come up there and give you a good hiding. Just a couple of things before we get started. Big thanks to everyone who came down to the Flicks and Scoops pop-up event last weekend and made it such fun. To quote Borat, it was a great success. And we're currently planning the next one, so stay tuned. And we can't let the episode start without some zany miscellany. Some miscellaneous information about actor Billy Zane. Zany miscellany. Zane was originally cast as the lead role in Dirty Dancing. During auditions, however, the choreographer realized that Zane couldn't dance, so the role went to Patrick Swayze. Nobody puts Billy in the corner. If you'd like to submit your own Zane, Mr. Lane, then DM us on socials or write into contact at flicksandscoops.com. And now, for your listening pleasure, Flicks and Scoops Episode 18.
1: Now it's time for ice cream. And you can get it right here.
0: All right, flicks and scoops. Thanks to the power of the World Wide Web, I'm accompanied today by an old pal from back home. Now, some of you will know him from that McDonald's advert that time, but to most, (laughs) he's the actor, the scribe the playwright, Mr. Matthew Greenhoff.
1: I'll, I'll give myself a round of applause just to add to the uh, to the audio do. atmosphere. Just to give a little bit of aesthetic, please. Um, it's bloody dead in here. <laughs> I need a bit of Steve Wright in the afternoon ex- exuberance. <laughs> now, that McDonald's advert is going to haunt me until the day that I die. It was literally the first thing that I ever done straight out of finishing uni. I moved to Sheffield, moved to London even, and was, couldn't, wasn't officially living in the flat that I was living in. And so couldn't sign on for a uh, housing benefit and had an acting agent. And they sent me up for the first ever possible audition that I could do. And uh, it was a McDonald's advert, which instantly challenged my feelings of like, moral superiority over everybody else. And, and I was like, hey, it's fine, I'll do the audition and I won't get it. And then I got it. So I just in this. But I, the woman strokes my hand, and she looks like she's my carer. I was meant to be her boyfriend. It wasn't. It wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start
0: somewhere, though. Yeah. How are you doing? How are you?
1: I'm not too bad, man. Uh, lockdowns treat me well. I'm just working hard and uh, writing a lot and cracking on. Getting
0: a bit homesick, sitting on my on my bowels online.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're sitting on Dev Green like we, that's what I literally what I did this afternoon was sit on the on Dev Green, which is where I smoked my first spliff at 13, and then I sat there this afternoon and drank a Peroni, and I was like, the only thing that's changed in the 16 year gap is the fact that I was on Light cider and now I'm on a expensive lager. <laughs> that's that's as far as I've got in 16 years. I've done a total regression.
0: Just uh, got more expensive taste. Well, this episode was brought to you by Flicks and Scoops Express Delivery, a.k.a. Mum. Hopefully the first of many deliveries.
1: I completely forgot that she was coming round. Oh, really? <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she knocked on my door. I mean, it was just a very friendly lady just with a bag <laughs> on the other side of my door. for like, hey the again. random
0: bag of ice cream. <laughs> But no, it was very, very, very good to see it. <laughs> well, we've got a sugar puff ice cream, which let me tell you, actually, it was surprisingly difficult to make and not because it's technically adept, but sourcing sugar puffs was a nightmare. I don't know if you tried buying sugar puffs lately, but I think the big supermarkets don't stock them anymore because of the sugar levels. So I had to get them from the village shop where it's as if anything from 1998 onwards never happened
1: <laughs> are these proper are these like uh brand level sugar puffs are they some kind of like brand stu-
0: level sugar puffs okay. honey monster certified okay, are you, are usually okay. a cereal are usually a cereal enjoyer
1: i'm a cereal man but i i was brought up in a household where if someone had like like Heinz ketchup, I was like, ah, very bit posh. It's like I'm supermarket own brand all the way. So I, I, I had sugar puffs as a child, but we were like, we we're like, <laughs> fructose bursts, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> some really shitty cheap alternative. So uh, I, I feel,
0: I feel posh eating the uh, legit. Honey <laughs> monster brand. Well, I think they get a bad press, but I'd like to think one day people will be adult enough to recognise cereal as a, a meal other than breakfast.
1: Well, I've not had them in a long time, but this is uh, this is delicious. So I'm uh, I'm definitely definitely going to go back and check them out.
0: Good stuff. Well, uh, Greenoff elected four lions, and. Yeah, as I've not done a serial ice cream yet, I thought it'd too good an opportunity to miss. Considering there's a the whole gag centered around the Wookiee bear, Honey Monster mixed up. Um, but before we get to that, have you have you to come to a heavy bout of cabin fever? Because usually you're out treading the boards.
1: Well, as I said in the in the pre podcast chat, but it didn't happen. The um, I, <laughs> I've kind of been I've been, I've been kind of writing a lot, so it's been. Been kind of nice. I'm actually going back to London tomorrow to um, pack up all my things and I'm moving back up to Sheffield for a while. And the idea of leaving the comfort, the the womb of lockdown is actually slightly like anxiety inducing at this point. Like, I'm meeting up with some friends tomorrow evening in, in, in London. I'm like, I don't know how to interact with people that aren't in my immediate household. That aren't on a screen. Yeah, well, that's it. I've been sitting with my friend Nikki for. Um, for the last three months and it's just like me and her in some kind of like steptoe and son type uh, existential quagmire and uh, the idea of leaving the safety of that seems quite anxiety inducing but we'll see I'm yeah I'm kind of I'm vaguely excited we'll see how it goes
0: well fortunately or unfortunately uh, Greenoff and I have known each other since uni where we used to chat absolute cobblers in party kitchens but luckily since then we've somewhat matured and Greenough, you're now the founder and creative director of wound up theatre and you've been putting on plays in london and edinburgh fringe have you been using this downtime to develop new shows
1: yeah so um theatre's been my kind of bread and butter although i never actually intended to kind of theatre wasn't what i kind of wanted to get into it was more uh, i wanted to do stand-up and then I saw, and then stand-up was awful, so I wanted to write plays. I mean, I thought I'd do comedy plays, and every play that I wrote just ended up being like John Osborne, but with dick jokes, just like a really sad story. Um, so kind of, I've been doing I've been doing that, but I've been very lucky to be on the BBC drama Writers' Room uh, 2020 and 2021. So I've been developing a pilot script based on my last Edinburgh show over the last few months. So this downtime has given me lots of time to get that done, which is good because I'm, I'm quite easily distracted. And if somebody goes, oh, do you want to go to a pub? I'll go, oh yeah, oh absolutely. And justify it by, oh, I've earned it because I've written 14 words. Um, but because that hasn't been an option, it means I've been working uh, dead hard on my script.
0: Well, annoyingly, I've not been back when your plays have been showing. So I've, I've not actually seen one in person. I know you sent me a couple of scripts. Which uh, which I really enjoyed, but obviously don't compare to the real thing. Um, the ones I did read were full of quite acerbic comedy. Was it specifically plays as opposed to stand-up state that what was it that drew you to that?
1: Well I, uh, so I started doing stand-up and I found the culture of it just like I don't know the, the, the people I always really liked, and I know I know you liked them as well like one of uh one of the reasons we like always got on was like kind of like bill hicks and more kind of like aware like socially aware kind of comedians and when you're starting doing stand-up it's just five minutes to tell your best kind of gag and your best dick joke and you can't really talk about anything of, of value and I, I kept on trying to talk about stuff that i was actually interested in and politics and not not explicitly politics i wasn't being like Kind of like spitting image or like trying to be like private eye or like radio four about it. I was just wanting to talk about stuff I found interesting and you couldn't really. And I was doing stand up and I was coming up against just people who were absolutely smashing it every night, but we were just Michael McIntyre clones. And I was like, it's not what I really want to do. So I wrote a, a play based on my experiences being on the doll. I'm a massive. Like Seinfeld and uh, Kirby Enthusiasm fan, as I know you are too, and I decided like Larry David in Kirby Enthusiasm, he had he just taken himself and just made this like terrible mutant version of the worst aspects of himself and played that out as a as a sitcom character, and so I did the same. And I'd been a student, but before that, I'd just been like on the dole and like a squatter and like a bit of a dropout. And so I kind of, the squat the the dole element, I kind of took and I was like, that's that's a funny predicament. Like all comedy characters are stuck in a position they don't want to be in. And so I'll take the worst version of myself and I'll write a story about me being on the dole as the worst version of myself. And I called him Anthony Bates. That was like the first play. And uh, that was kind of what, but it ended up then being because I'm quite obsessively political. It ended up being kind of like a critique of uh, the, 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 the unemployment culture and the way that unemployed people are treated in the media and like. And so, uh, for anybody who missed the irony in that statement, I was aware that I was being a complete <laughs> but like,
0: but that was Well, it. I was going to say you, you you write quite you write quite topically. Um, Is it because you want to remain current, or is it just what you find more interesting?
1: It's just what I'm interested in. So, like, the first one was about, the first play that I wrote was about being on the Dole. It was because i have been on the Dole. And then uh, the next one I wrote was a play called Biss Miller, which I wouldn't have written if it wasn't for Four Lions, which was about um, a British soldier being held captive by a British defector to ISIS. And I kind of wrote that and did, like, a a, a prototype version of it and then moved on to other things, and then that kind of came back and, took over again um and then the the third one I wrote was about kind of social media and like the rise of Instagram and that was like in 2017 and then and then I came and then Biss Miller kind of took off again kind of had a second life and became uh, I rewrote it and kind of made it uh and, and it kind of took off again but that was just that was like a just a slow burn development thing as opposed to kind of trying to react to anything and then the thing that I'm writing at the moment is kind of off the back of. Bis Miller, I just kind of became obsessed with people getting radicalized because it was about people getting radicalized to uh, kind of Wahhabi Islam, and uh, then we had like Brexit and Trump and this rise of kind of extremist right-wing ideas and YouTube right-wing commentators and things, and I found that fascinating. So it was just it's just stuff that I'm interested in, but I'm just quite in I'm just quite interested in what is what makes people tick and what makes people tick in the 21st century in the West is lunacy, apparently. And so that's, <laughs> what,
0: that's what I keep on
1: leaning into.
0: It's, it's hard to disagree, really. Yeah. Um, and your latest on this, It'll Be All Right on the Night. So were you, you were in the middle of performing that, right, when Corona hit and then you had to shut productions down. Right? Yeah,
1: so that's what my TV show is as well. It's kind of a very loose adaptation of the play. So my initial thing with that was I wanted to go back to some kind of stand-up Thing. I wanted to do a one-man show that was kind of from my perspective. So like when we met, we were like in our late teens in kind of in Sheffield, and I, that where we, we'd grown up and that, but my background with that was like I'd always been into punk music and uh, going to like DIY punk gigs and things. And from being like 12 13 it really informed my sensibilities. And I realized that, that that kind of but it split because it was very anti-authoritarian. There's a lad called Paul Joseph Watson. I don't know if you're familiar with him.
0: I remember you trying to contact him because he's I was from around r and RND. He's off
1: Parsons Cross, which is the same my family's off Parsons Cross. So like he's off Parsons Cross as well. But he you know InfoWars that's run by uh Alex Jones.
0: Yeah, he's big on that, isn't he?
1: Yeah, well he's he's the uh he's the editor in chief of uh of InfoWars.
0: Is he? Yeah,
1: and he's from Parsons Cross. It's fucking nuts. Bearing in mind the guy who runs Infowars is Alex Jones. When Donald Trump was running for the presidency, he went on Alex Jones' radio show and said, I'm doing this for you, Alex. And the second in command at Infowars is Paul Joseph Watson, who's off Parsons Cross, went to Chaucer School, which is the same fucking school as my dad went to. And it's like, that's fucking nuts. So I had this idea about doing a stand-up show, about trying to track him down and trying to make friends with him. Um, and being like, look, we've got the same background. I'm a fucking like lefty loony Marxist cracker, and you're like, you're this right wing nut job. Like, how did this happen? You reckon? And that was my like my initial idea. I was like, I'm going to try and be his friend and make a stand up show about it. Turns out he didn't want to talk to me, and so I ended up writing a play um, about two lads who I basically imagined that we'd had the exact same life, which we kind of basically did. Um, but we were best friends, and then he went that way, and I went the other. And about us reconnecting them and how that would happen. And so that's what I'm now. And so that was the play. But yeah, when COVID hit, I was on tour with that, and then kind of COVID put the kibosh on that. But then I got onto the BBC scheme. So now I'm writing a, a TV pilot, which is based on the same concept, but it's more the actual way that I'm pitching it to TV production companies is. Uh, Paddy Network meets Chris Morris's Four Lions. That's the idea. So it's about these two characters. The idea is that the, the right-wing character is, a po- is actually trying to be a YouTuber. And the left-wing character works for kind of a BuzzFeed organization. And um, they are they see each other on different sides of a free Tommy Robinson protest and then have to meet each other again at a uh, wedding of a mutual friend the the week after. And then the the fallout from that, the right-wing character does a YouTube video about that goes viral, and then the left-wing character is made by his uh, employer to do a rebuttal video, and it begins this uh, kind of, uh, yeah, network-style breakdown where they become de facto figureheads of kind of their respective sides, so kind of the very woke left and the kind of outright info wars, and they become. It's hashtag Team Greeny, which is the left-wing character, not remotely autobiographical, and hashtag Team B-Ned. Well, that's my mate B-Ned, who is a few years older than so I don't know if you know him, but my mate b is the loveliest guy in the entire world. But I just figured if I call the right-wing character B-Ned and, uh, and it makes it onto TV and hashtag b becomes a you know, euphemism for right-wing views, that's just quite funny for me to have made my friends, uh, <laughs> my friend a
0: right-wing meme. It's just a welcomed <laughs> byproduct. Yeah, <as> you of <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm just being a complete prick to my friend, Paul, basically.
0: <laughs> Do you have a title for it yet? Or are you going to get sniped for telling us?
1: The, no, I don't, actually. It's really bothering me. I, um, I'm i writing a play that I've got a title for um, that I was really proud of because um, uh, Seneca the Younger said, uh, what need is better weep over parts of life when all of it calls for tears? And I was like, oh, parts of life. That's a great name for a play. I'm normally really good with names. Bismillah came to me when I realized that uh, the first word of the Quran is uh, Bismillah, which means in the name of uh, Allah, most gracious and merciful. And then it's also in uh the Bohemian Rhapsody like uh you ah, right. which is like well that's a perfect combination but no I haven't so at the moment it's the working title is still It'll be outright on the night.
0: I'm sure you'll find something that makes you, your turtleneck rolls just that bit higher
1: <laughs> Well when we took uh when we took It'll be outright on the night to uh, Edinburgh we got a really weird selection of uh, about 10%. We sold quite well. so future, We sold out a reasonable amount, but we, uh, I'd say about 10% of the people that bought tickets thought it'll be out there on the night. We we're expecting like Dennis Waterman <laughs> being like, oh, here's one for you. The cast members of uh, Emmerdale having a tick up. T- t- and so about 10% of our audience was like, 60, 70 year olds thinking that it was It Will Be Alright on the night
0: <laughs> oh man was there anybody who thought it was going to be It Will Be Alright in the Night like Tommy Robinson edition
1: <laughs> no, well there was people who thought it was that and stormed out when I mentioned the word wank flannel in the first five minutes <laughs> <laughs>
0: So A worthy right. word to leave on
1: They'd already paid so it was fine <laughs> <laughs> I had their ticket money we were, my, percent, my, my minimum percentage of ticket sales was already being met by their confusion so I didn't mind The bear target has changed Is their target honey monster
0: Is a honey monster a bear?
1: A honey monster is not a bear A honey monster is a bear The honey monster is down He was a target, he was a bear the Honey Monster is down Honey Monster is not down control We have a Wookiee down What's a Wookiee? A bear, it's a bear No, it
0: is a Wookiee You've just shot it as a bear It's a, Wookie, a it's bear. a bear? No. It's a bear wait, what? The Wookiee is down, the Wookiee is not the target yes, the Well, it must be the target, I just shot it So, Matthew Greenoff, are you a flicker or a scooper? I don't know what a flicker is
1: don't <laughs> know what's a flicker demonstrate so i can see you for those who are listening so can you demonstrate what a flick is in this regard because it sounds overtly sexual to me
0: (laughs) flicks is films scoops is ice cream so do you prefer films or ice
1: cream cream is the question okay i've been wondering this as you sent me a list of questions um i'm yeah if i had to give up one i'd give up ice cream if like so yes i suppose i'm a I'm say a, a it
0: say it, it. <laughs>
1: as opposed to a scooper i'm just i'm just going past about 19 sexual innuendos but okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you love it you're full of dick jokes <laughs> uh, when you do eat ice cream do you prefer it in a cup or a cone i've literally never understood the uh, the cone
1: I, I, it seems like a completely wasted element to me I understand it as a, in a practical way. If you're buying it from an ice cream man on a hot day in a park, it's like it's better for the environment, I suppose. If you eat the waste, but that's what it is. It is waste. Once you get down past the ice cream, it's just you're just left with this cardboard, soggy, sweaty, tasteless member. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a fan. So yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd much rather have the the bowl
0: than the than anything else? Sweating over ice cream. I think that's the first. What's your favourite ice cream flavour? Like, if you go to a shop and you've only got enough money for one scoop, what would you buy? The cookie dough Ben and Jerry's. I think it's just because it's
1: the first like Ben and Jerry's I had. I think I was like about eleven, and someone and I went to my my dad's girlfriend's house, my stepmom's now's house, and she I'd never had uh, Ben and Jerry's before, and she gave us uh, she gave us a. a cookie dough ice cream and it just blew my mind. I've I, I don't think I've ever reached the ecstasy of that moment since I've been chasing it for the last uh, 19 years but
0: chasing that cookie dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's become it's become a real a, a real negative impact on my life. I, I blame her for it constantly.
0: Hey, but she knows I have to win kids over. Exactly. Yeah. So cookie
1: dough, cookie dough is the one I think. Although I'm being one round to the uh, to uh, to the uh, sugar Puffs.
0: Good plug. <laughs> is ice cream usually uh, your snack of choice at the cinema? Um, yes, because it's quiet. There we go. Correct answer.
1: My uh, my, my my friend Joel, who I'm uh, currently living with in in London actually works at The View in, uh, in Leicester Square. Uh, so for the last year that I've lived with him, while in the brief time the cinemas have been open, uh, I've been able to go into the cinema for free and have a pint glass full of free Ben & Jerry's ice cream, which at those prices is about 50, 60 quid's worth of ice cream. Oh, my God. When we went to see Tenet, we actually went absolutely fucking nuts. And uh, we just got... a. Uh, like bags of the overpriced sweets that were going out of date from a store room and poured them over the sprinkles. It was... uh it was diabetes, but it was wonderful.
0: I don't think I've ever been so jealous of anything in my life, to be honest. Well, it
1: was the highlight of the, the cinema experience because the rest of it was just confusing, indulgent. what dialogue. Big <laughs> things going yeah. up. Cinema. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't understand a word. I thought he'd learned his lesson with Bane, but it was insane. Like, you actually couldn't understand anything anybody was saying. I was like, have I if just gone deaf? Is this my fault or is this actually the the sound levels in this film?
0: yeah he does it on purpose tries to be a bit hoity-toity doesn't he um, do you go to the cinema a lot though if it's not free
1: <laughs> no no I do but only because well I'm a Yorkshireman so only if it's cheap I lo- so I live in South East London so I'm near the Peckhamplex so i can go for a fiver and for a long time I wasn't working normal hours so I was off by myself a lot during midweek so I'm a big fan of going to the cinema by myself midweek and uh, just having the cinema to myself Peckhamplex in Peckham five quid a it's sticky floors it's like going to the cinema in 1992 but it's great
0: no but five quid is super cheap these days well yeah exactly why did you pick four lions um
1: well there's a few, a few reasons actually the it's, it's a sheffield film um i'm very proud of sheffield and i like to see it represented on screen and it's not very often represented on screen. It's not very uh, often well represented on screen, and, and Four Lions is is is, is great, and you know most about tourists. It does a good job of like showing the the warmth and the culture of Sheffield, I think. Um, and then it's Chris Morris, who is my absolute hero. And as we said, like I I I, I write and I'm trying to make telly and and I make theatre and stuff and. Basically, what Chris Morris does is what I aspire to do because he he talks about stuff that matters and he makes it hilarious, but he doesn't pull any punches. It's explicit and it's honest and it's not always comfortable. And I think that's a good way of describing Four Lions*. It's like it's it's a it's a comedy about terrorism, but at no point does it seek to belittle the victims or even the perpetrators. Like it, it is an a truthful look at the reason that those things happen and and that kind of that world just fascinates me and i think four lines is one of the reasons it does fascinate me because it came out when i was like 20 before i'd started writing and i was just like it's just the thing i aspire to do so chris morris is is kind of the the number one for me you can't really do do much better Although Amandi Onucci does make better films. <laughs> Four Lions is his peak. I wasn't a massive fan of it. It's more recent.
0: Nor was I, actually. I was a bit disappointed. But I think what made Four Lions so good at the time as well is that I don't think he'd done anything for quite a while. Up until No, I think point. it was his
1: first thing since uh, Nathan Barley. So it's like five years just working on that. I think the reason that his second film didn't work as well was because it was it felt too similar to... Four Lions, it was kind of treading similar ground, whereas Four Lions felt like it was breaking new ground in such an extra, like an exciting and kind of authentic way. I felt like his second film was treading the same ground, but just not
0: quite as effectively. The humor didn't quite hit either, I didn't think. No, I think it's so.
1: Four Lions is so British. And. And and I think that it didn't translate when it was a similar kind of style, but in America.
0: Just on that Sheffield point, just as a disclaimer, it's a great representation of Sheffield. However, we don't have information screens on trams. No! This is a, a media fallacy.
1: Yeah, but, oh, that is an annoying moment.
0: <laughs> That's the only bit where I'm like, oh,
1: God damn. The other bit of Paul Lions is. Is when they go to Sheffield and it's still full life. It's, it's still it's London. still Sheffield. When they go to London, sorry, and it's still Sheffield. That's that wouldn't be frustrating for anybody else that's not from Sheffield. But if you're from Sheffield, it's it's a really annoying they go down to London to do the to do the suicide attack. And uh, and they're just in Sheffield and it's really recognizable, it's like kebabish uh, and like they're on the moor.
0: The worst bit for me which, which I mean, I get equally as pissed off about it as you do, but it's when he runs down the side of Sainsbury's on the moor, and then the camera does a 180 as though he's supposed to be in a different place, and he's just on the other side of that bridge, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They've just like switched him and made him run down the same alleyway.
1: Yeah, I literally walked past there today and said to my friend, "I was like, oh, this is where he, and this is where he has the conversation." And that's the boots that he blows up. <laughs> like, literally, it's, it's always, it's never that far from my consciousness. And it wasn't just because I knew I was doing a podcast; I would have said that anyway. Like, I can't walk down the mall without thinking about that. Do
0: you remember the first time you saw it? Was it particularly memorable?
1: Yeah, it is actually, but um, I, I didn't like it. Uh, I went to see it with uh, Jim McNeely. When he was in, in um when he was living in Leeds I and mean, was the Leeds picture house in woodhouse which is like a really beautiful little independent cinema like it was it, it's uh, it's like one screen it still looks like it's from 1930s in there and it, I think it's the only time I've been but it's a really beautiful little independent space and I went to see it really excited having been an enormous Brass eye fan and having loved uh like uh, Nathan barley and I was underwhelmed, and I wanted to enjoy it, and I was excited, and I was like, oh, I'm really going to... And, and, and it made me laugh, but it was kind of that forced laugh where you're like, oh. But I've subsequently realized that that happens quite a lot with stuff that I really, really like, and especially stuff I find really, really funny. It happened with Spinal Tap. It happened with um, What We Do in the Shadows. Like, the first time I watch it, I'm not that taken. And when I re-watch it, and it just... It, something clicks and it falls into place and it's and I genuinely think it's one of the funniest films I've ever seen. And it got so much rewatch value. I don't know how many times I've seen it. It's definitely uh, one of the films I've watched the most. And uh yeah, but that first time I appreciated the technique of it, although I probably wouldn't have termed, put it in those terms at the time. I was like, yeah, they've done a good job of making a film about something really provocative without making it like needlessly offensive and it works and it's got a satisfying story and like ends well but I didn't find it that funny and now just even picturing some of the scenes makes me like I I find it funny I can't hear Dancing in the Moonlight without like giggling
0: I think the problem these days is trailers because I think they put you know the best bits the funniest bits in the trailers so by the time you come to watch the film you've probably already seen it you know, five or six times.
1: I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. But I don't think that most films are very funny now. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that, like, like, there's not that, like, the, the quality of comedy that comes out is, I mean, even Chris Morris's latest film, like, it's not, it's not, it's not reaching the same kind of heights. I think the last film that I saw that I was like, was, absolutely blew my mind funny was, I mean, it's kind of a, a cousin creatively of Four Lions is, uh, the Death of Stalin, which is like Amanda and Nietzsche, obviously like Chris Morris and Amanda and Nietzsche came up together and whatnot,
0: even that I didn't think was that did great. you not
1: oh i would I'd recommend giving that a rewatch because there's some there's some moments in that that I think rival four Lions,
0: so do you think Four Lions is more comedy than tragedy? I think that the but the,
1: the, the, the two are. So far from mutually exclusive, there's nothing I find less enjoyable to watch than something that is earnestly tragic, like to the degree that I almost find it funny. A good example, I re- so again another Warp thing, and I really really like this is this is England the film the first film this is England absolutely brilliant, like absolutely phenomenal, and then and 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 funny and had like, that sh- those shades of lightness and darkness, and then actually this. Well, I started off this this, this statement as saying, sometimes unrelenting tragedy is so, like, po-faced that it's funny. That wasn't funny at all. <laughs> the end of the series of This Is England is just so unrelentingly grim, but it becomes unrealistic. Like, I can't engage with yeah. the unrelenting realism of just, like, heroin in a puddle. It's like, it's the last fucking, it's just people having a terrible, shitty time and feeling miserable. And I just don't, by it is and 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 i'm not engaged by it because it doesn't doesn't ring true to me like people are finding humor in the most bleak situation all good comedy comes from tragedy like like you look at any of the most any comedy any any comedic character and this is what like four lions does so well it's like four lions i know chris morris actually used like um dad's army as a reference it's like you you put a group of blokes together and it's going to be stupid people are going to fuck up and that's what that's what that is but look at any comedy you've got only fools and horses steptoe and son like uh, faulty towers these are these are desperate kind of pathetic men striving for something and being trapped in their miserable existence and you can look at you can make that one way whereby they are miserable pathetic men trapped in their existence and you can make some like beckett-esque kind of drama about it or you can make them act like a bit of a tit in an attempt to better themselves and like that's more truthful right and so i think it is a i think it's what i like the most which is comedy born out of a tragic circumstance and that's what i said like uh, I can't, uh, I, when I started writing I, I started writing thinking I was going to write comedy just thinking I was just going to write straight comedy and thinking all the best comedy that I like comes out of like miserable circumstances and then the miserable circumstances end up having a really dramatic arc so like it was about like it, it was so miserable I was just writing miserable plays and putting in knob gags like that was just what I was doing <laughs> but like what Four Lions does which is a, a be- which is why I'm not Chris Morris, is because he's able to have tragedy that is exclusively comedic without undermining the tragedy of that of that reality at all.
0: I don't know if it's just me getting older, but I watched it again last night for this and I, I thought it was more a tragedy masquerading as a comedy. And I know that sounds... Totally daft, considering you've got no, such no. behemoths of British comedy writing it. And don't get me wrong, it's a hell of a lot funnier than ninety percent of comedies that are released these days. But I think at its core, it's just got a lot more tragic elements to it. Like,
1: is that you coming from it? Coming at it from a twenty twenty one perspective, though. It's like,
0: when was this written? Like twenty ten? Quite possibly. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the the thing that struck me was that I think because I've found it so funny. I think when I rewatched it yesterday, it maybe it's not been as obvious. Well, not as obvious, but maybe it's not felt as important before. But it was this intense combination of like religion, politics, alienation, stereotyping, surveillance state. And of course, I, you know, it's very obvious in the film, but I'd maybe not paid it so much mind before. I, I suppose that it was the last scene that sums it up for me most. Well, that last scene is absolutely heartbreaking and it is, is genius. But I think the
1: last scene specifically is, like, is commie tragic in the most profound way because the last scene is his brother, in, like, well, actually, as the credits roll, and you've got his brother in that, um, that um like, con- shipping container and you've got that British guy, going, the British, like, intelligence guy going, like, so this is technically sovereign Egyptian soil on French land in Britain. Essentially saying that we've created so many bureaucratic like loops of nonsense, I can fucking rip your toenails off and torture you to fuck, and you can do nothing about it. Um, so that you admit what you knew about your brother, even though he's completely peaceful. Like that's reaffirmed throughout the film. Like he's really dedicated Islamic scholar who is completely anti-violence in any circumstances to the degree that he won't even touch a water pistol. And like, but he's and, and that end point is going. This is a bureaucratic lunacy that I've that I'm, I've placed you in, so that you tell me what I want to know, or I'm going to hurt you. And that's how the film ends. And when I word it like that, I like i would never I'd like that's that's so so bleak. But the way that it's presented at the end of that film is you are on Egyptian, you're in an Egyptian container on French soil. In, it might not be French. I can't remember. It's Egyptian. It's definitely an Egyptian, like sovereign Egyptian land in and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but it, it's the, he's just presenting in that moment, the lunacy of the reality of it, and it becomes funnier than with any fiction.
0: It was a toss-up for me doing this serial ice cream, because there's a Honey Monster reference, but also in that scene, he goes, we know more than you think we know, and then he pulls that Weetabix out of his pocket. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, in terms of, like, his, the arrogance of that that guy, and be like, we know more than you <laughs> That's fucking funny as shit, man. But you go, but, I think one of the things that is maybe different now, I mean, there's so many problems in the world, that, like, do you remember when we just had to worry about radical Islam? (laughs) That was the halcyon days of just fearing a terrorist attack. Uh, Some illegal holy wars in the Middle East. Ah, those days, they were were fun. We were presented, the terrorists of that age, as al-Qaeda, this underground, like MI6 kind of circumstance. And the reality of it was that it was splinter cells of disenfranchised, angry, confused, stupid men who didn't know how to express their anger. So we're doing it by fucking making nail bombs and blowing themselves up. There was a line in what the thing that, so I wrote this, Miller, the, the play about ISIS based, inspired by Riz Ahmed, who plays... Uh, the lead character in uh, Four Lions, and um, one of his raps was uh, one of his um, spoken word like you know, hip hop tracks is called Sour Times, and that inspired me to write um, Bis Miller because one of the lines was, uh, "It's no coincidence for all those, uh, but all those bombers down south came from getters up north." The young that the way that Blair and Bush talk give a young man a cause, and like that was that that was so like. That was the reality of it. It was just like these just angry young men, just kicking off because they didn't know what else to do.
0: Does uh, does laughing at the silliness of some would be terrorists mean that young Muslim men are being demeaned, or is it more that they're being? Do you think Chris Morris is doing it to make them more normalised and made less like othered? So I'm I'm
1: I'm going to. Commit the cardinal sin of a podcast, and I'm going to quote another podcast. But I heard um, Gus Khan, the, the comedian, uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk on uh, the uh, on the Adam Buxton podcast, and say that like, oh, he's a uh, British Muslim from Birmingham, um, and he was like, "The favorite film of British Muslims is like bit, is obviously that's an incredibly broad like <laughs> statement to make, but." The British Muslim community fucking love Four Lions. Like it feels incredibly truthful. They've I mean, not really been. It's not the that community has not been represented very well um, in, in in culture, and they are often stereotyped as radical Islamists. But when they're stereotyped as radical Islamists, they're stereotyped as radical Islamists who are psychopathic serial killers, as opposed to just somebody who's a bit of a tit. And it's so much easier to relate to someone who's. Who's just a bit of a tit. So I think it's a very positive portrayal. Riz Ahmed, again said in relation I'm a bit of a fanboy of Riz Ahmed, And I, I was before Four Lions came out as well. Like I really like his his spoken word and his hip hop. they have got a great body of work. Oh mate. And he's fucking gonna be an Oscar winner. By the time anybody hears this, he should be well, I've not seen that film, but he should be an Oscar winner because he's a fucking sick actor. So I I um also he's wearing a rudimentary peanut t shirt in that film uh he's playing a he's playing a, a a deaf uh punk drummer so he just ticks every box for me like diy weird cross punk and like hip-hop and like funny chris morris films he's he's he's, he's, a, he's a good bloke um but yeah he uh he talked about british pakistani actors having uh to, to play different roles so they play the so uh, hopefully this has moved on, but this is a few years ago and you would say that bef- British Pakistani actors would be, well, first they'd just play terrorists. They'd play like, stereotypical like terrorists or play like Roo Boy, kind of like fucking street men's, like, they'd put, like negative, reinforcing negative stereotypes about British Muslims and British Pakistani uh, people. And, and then they'd play something that would subvert that type, which would be like your Four Lions, where they're like, oh, well, he's a terrorist, but he's a terrorist for a good reason. And then the third layer of uh, of acting would be where you'd be able to surpass that and you'd just be able to play a, pe- a people, like like they, like they are, like we all are. You'd just be able to play people, not defined by your race and religion. Um, But I think that Four Lions, while it falls into that second category, which is obviously better than the first category, but not quite as good as the third, I think it said something really important. And actually, with... One of the, the most interesting character, or one of—I them, I mean, we're all interesting characters. Um, but Barry, like <laughs> Barry, is the is the white convert, and statistically, if you were a white convert to Islam, you were uh, significantly more likely to be radicalized than somebody who was born into Islam as as kind of as growing up. Oh, here's a little uh, tip, a little factoid you might enjoy. I'm a ginger man for anybody who can't. Uh, Can't see that or don't know me already. Uh, And I wrote a play about radical Islam. Turns out that 70%, and my friend Savon sent me this when I was developing uh, this Miller years ago, 70% of white radical Islamists are ginger.
0: So you're just a you're just a shitty Facebook post away from shipping yourself <laughs> off to Syria.
1: Exactly. I've got my theory is that it's about being bullied and that, like being othered and made to feel ostracised by the, by a mainstream culture. That's my that's my theory. Or just as gingers are naturally hot headed and. The logical and terrifying extension of that is uh, is suicide bombing. I don't know.
0: <laughs> You're not laughing at them because they're Muslim. You're laughing because they're idiots. And it's not no. just it's not just the main group. There's basically nobody who went in the firing line. There's ineptitude everywhere. And I think that's what the film does well. It it gives the characters humanity. They're not just stereotypes like you talked about. They're all relatable to in some way. And they all face moral dilemmas and. There's layers to each character. The
1: fact that they're Muslim is the least interesting part of all of them. It's not that, like, they're not being stereotyped as, as Muslim characters. Nobody thinks that, but, but, like, you, you look at the, the, any of them and, you and you're not thinking, oh, yeah, well, that's a Muslim. You think, well, that's the idiot. That's the one who's slightly more of an idiot, but whose dad uh, thinks, uh, believe, is, like, obsessed with crows. That's the one who thinks he's smart, but's actually stupid. That's the one who thinks he's the leader, but actually isn't the leader. It's like, they've got, they are a gang of, Lads, like they, they are, an they're great. It's the Seinfeld gang, isn't it? Like they all fit together so perfectly as their types. Like they work together so well as a collection, a collective. But their ethnicity or their religious background is immaterial. Like what's driving the story is their. Is is the fact, is their characters.
0: Well it just shows us a, a group of lads from from the north who are just as alienated by consumerism and capitalist society as every other working class person. That's
1: why I've come round to I've moved straight on to writing about the art right. It seems it's exactly the same. And in fact, with regards to Barry, um in like reading and like uh Listening to the the writers and the, and the creators talk about it subsequently, they based Barry on a, a real guy who was like an EDL guy, like a right wing guy who was radicalized in prison. Um, who became who went from being a right wing, like anti-Islamist guy, to somebody who was and then was prisoned for doing something EDL like, and then in prison got converted to Islam and then became radicalized and then became. <laughs> an Islamic extremist, like to be, it's just the the Islamic element is just is 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 the extremism that they've chosen. But
0: well, it almost could transcend religion. I mean, if you set the film in a group of neo Nazis, for example, Barry's almost just looking for trouble, so converts to that because he's, he expects to see more action. know I also I thought particularly in the case of Barry it was almost a commentary on like white masculinity I guess the main question for him would be about his radicalisation but you know he's the most violent out of the whole gang and then you get this sexual deviancy vibe where he's forced to stick beans in the dicks so or piss in the mouth <laughs> I don't know <laughs> maybe he didn't fit into his if previous community that, with, with possibly a it wasn't manly yeah
1: did he not make you do that thing with a bit bean? I'll be under your nose. <laughs> so fucking good. But uh, again, being a nerd about the film and not being able to just enjoy it as a film, having to nail everything. The, uh, the guy who played Barry and Chris Morris talked about his backstory and um, the backstory that they came up with uh, was that um, Barry's wife had cheated on him and had moved the other bloke into the house and Barry had to go out and live in the shed <laughs> and was just living sleeping in the shed and listening to his wife have sex with this guy all the time and that was the thing and that was one of the things that happened to Barry. <laughs> Which is awful. He's like that's funny. It's a funny thing. It's like okay, that's the thing that made help making it radicalised. And that's the like that's the character detail that they came up with for him But but like that's a whole like <laughs> again he's talking about the tragedy and the comedy. It's like, yeah, that's that's an awful thing that, ha- that happened to a human. You you can understand why you'd be so fucking like broken as a human being, that you could buy into this insane idea and like trying to find meaning in your life elsewhere. Yeah, you know, that's that's what happened to Barry. Apparently,
0: <laughs> uh, that him. Oh, ah, I don't He's ah. been tested. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. testing yeah. me. How don't do you do that then? Do oh, I remember mean, do that bean thing, man? No. What bean thing? You know where you put a bean at the end of your knob, man. you are on the parking you put... Buddy! you are on the parking. What's the scene about a bean, buddy? Families of the Seventh of July bombing victims said it's too close to home. And given Chris Morris's controversial past, do you think he'd done it purposely to shock?
1: Um
0: mm, I think the fact that it was
1: shocking wasn't a problem. Um but I don't think that, that was the I don't think that, that was the impetus to do it I think that that was something that happened uh it was a that was a byproduct of wanting to talk about this I think it came from for me when I I mean obviously I'm not Chris Morris, but i so I, I, I but when I tried when I tried to do a jihadi comedy it was the fact that I recognized the humor in the story and then and thought that that was an important thing to like vocalise that obviously. Pauline this more is is was kind of about like bombing and things. I was doing about lad's our age uh, six years ago, but running off to Syria, and I kind of recognised why that that was kind of happening and recognised that for me. Again, I kind of I don't want to make any presumptions on this part, but for me it was uh when Jihadi John was on the front page of the Sun, and uh it said that. His, he showed a picture of Jihadi John when he was a little boy, and it said something like, uh, "Look at this. This is the this is the, the child who grew up to into a monster." But at five years old, he said that his favorite thing was football and McDonald's chips. I was like, "That's that's, this, that's funny. <laughs> it's funny that like we're talking about him in relation to McDonald's chips, just the mundanity, the mundanity of this of this child." And then we the, like that, What the fuck happened in that gap? And like the like the modernity in the opposition seemed interesting. And then, and again, I suppose that's these blokes who were just idiots in in the north. And I think in relation to Chris Morris as well, it was uh, in reading about these things. There was some bombers who wanted to blow up the Houses of Parliament, and they put a dinghy full of explosives into the Thames, and it sunk. And it's like that's that's funny. And I think he recognised these things and was just like, well. It, I think it, it, it depowers it and of course they're going, to, they're going to say oh well it's too soon I would suggest that it was probably journalists who went to him before and went like from the Daily Mail going they've made a
0: joke of it I think you're right I think it's it's all this hype and misunderstanding that's. You know, it's quite symptomatic of his career. Anyway, uh, there was, I picked it out to read to you because I thought you'd like it. Let me just get it up. Uh, there was one quote in particular stood out. It's from a BBC article and uh, it's from one of the victim's fathers. He said, it's very specific. It's very aligned to what happened in 2005. And they talk about bombing in London. That's not parodying or being satire about terrorists. It's making money about a specific attack. And then it goes on to say, Mister Folks, who said he watched the clips of Four Lions online. <laughs> yeah, so he's not even watch the film. It's like it just summed it up for me. It's the whole furore that surrounded him since Brass Eye. I
1: challenge anybody to watch it and legitimately be offended. I mean, I mean, we could do a whole fucking podcast on the nature of offence. I mean, we could write a whole PhD dissertation on, it, like, where offence sits in contemporary culture. But I challenge, I challenge anybody to watch that film and legitimately be offended and if then they may are offended they're perfectly in, in the rights to be engage in a dialogue as to why like i don't think it says i don't think it actually it's wrapped up in a controversial wrapping paper but i think that the reality of it is fair, is not really con- it's not really controversial uh, like if you actually pick it apart. It's not controversial. It's too well thought out. It's too clever. Controversy is being offensive for the sake of being offensive. I think you can talk about anything in comedy as long as you do it with enough thought. And there's more than enough thought been put into four lines to mean that I think anybody who's related to somebody who who tragically lost somebody as a result of any terrorist attack, I think if they saw Four Lions, I would be surprised if they actually found it it offensive to the memory of their loved one. What's your What's your favourite scene? We've got this far in a podcast about uh, Four Lions without saying them Rubber diggy Rapids, which is going to be some kind of uh, going to be some kind of record of how I just undermined that, but self consciously. Uh, you know what? Okay, there's the fun, there's funny scenes. I like it in Kebabish where he's like, yeah, definitely not my defo not my confused face. And like, gold with a curl. And then there's like, uh, uh I'll have four pints of bleach, please. And like, there's, there's so, so, so many good moments, but I think my absolute favorite is when they're driving down to, uh, commit the attack in London. And at the beginning of the uh, the drive, it's like really early in the morning. It's like two, three, three o'clock in the morning. We're driving down and we're listening to like kind of traditional, like kind of Middle Eastern music. And we're kind of it's clearly like it's nervous anxiety in the truck and, we're, and, we're, and we're, just, we're all scared. And then it just, cuts to a scene where they're listening to top loaders dancing in the moonlight and they're all just fucking jiving and singing and dancing to top loader. And you just get so much of the reality of the characters from that moment. It's like, it's such a funny moment. You like, it's so honest and it's so beautiful. And you like, you, you pity them, you hate them. And there's just so much wrapped up in that. And it says so much about the reality of them as well. Cause we're all lads who are proud of their background and like proud of their religion. And they, but they are lads. Of the British, the Sheffield lads, and so Top Loader comes on. It'd be like me and you being in fucking like West Street Live on a <laughs> on a on a Monday night in two thousand and ten, going like we have probably already done to it. New. To be fair, <laughs> exactly. And it's like, and, and it's that moment where it's like they, and it's just, it's just, it's just such a great. song. like, and then you see Barry, and it's just a side look from Barry where he's just disapproving, and it's it's beautiful. So
0: it's it. it it's not the funniest. Well, I love the whole culture surrounding that, uh, surrounding that song as well, because it's not actually a Toploader original song. It's from the the seventies. I can't remember the name of the band, but it's oh, I don't like even
1: know. But I know it. Psychedelic. I don't think yeah, I've it's heard. like
0: some psychedelic jazzy number. And then you've got Toploader doing this wanky Jamie Oliver style music video that they got <laughs> hyper famous for, and then people people don't want to know if they don't play it at the gig. So there's loads of stories of Top Loader kicking off at gigs, refusing to play it because it's not one of their tunes. And then the crowd just turns on them because it's the only song they want to <laughs> hear. They're like the definition of a one-it wonder, but for a song that's not even theirs, which, there, I, you yeah. know, it fits nicely like into it. the cynicism of the modern capitalist culture of the film, but it cracks me up.
1: <laughs> if... Uh... If Amy Winehouse had only ever done Valerie and she was just forced to play that repeatedly, it's just like it's not hers.
0: You already mentioned mine. Uh, I don't think I've... I can't remember the last time I cried laughing in a cinema, but it's the it's the bleach bit when he puts his hands on <laughs> his face. Great <laughs> bit of physical comedy, that. Do you think people's attitudes to these topics that are addressed in the film have changed much in the time since it's been released?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. Um... I think that where we sit now in April 2021 people are not thinking about uh, radical like Islamist attacks in the same way that they were 8 even 18 months ago I say 18 months ago uh things hadn't changed really um well, what happened in between was it ISIS like ISIS was and and kind of and terror changed and we went from uh, like kind of al qaeda to isis and that was a it felt much more palpable and, and immediate threat uh, because it was because of the nature of kind of uh, like just rowing, not like, slashing people in the streets or throwing people down on, on on bridges and things and so um. Do I think the culture changed? No, and actually in the last few years I think it's it's kind of it's kinda of got worse, maybe. And I think maybe cultures are I think through well meaning uh intentions, cultures have become a bit a little we've become more divided and people are less integrated than perhaps they they kind of were before, so that's
0: not a funny answer oh. <laughs> No, no 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 it? Think, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be really of... but um yeah i think you're right there's not su- there's not such a spotlight on it now of course as there once was and slowly i suppose attitudes do seem to be changing but there's still this idea of like a binary good or bad muslim if that makes sense well it's
1: that's, kind of- I, I think you know, in fact, this, 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 I think that's the really interesting. I think I think where we are now, where we have got, and this actually this is what Chris Moyes challenged with 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 Four Lions was, post in two thousand and two, two thousand and three, George W. Bush said, "You either with us or you are with the terrorists," and it, and that was a binary. And since like the Cold War, that was the first time we'd been like. We'd like we'd left the cold war and we're like, things aren't black and white. Things are a little bit grey and murky. We don't quite know what the crack is. Like, some things are good, some things are bad. Most of it most everything is in this grey area in the middle. And then nine eleven happened and uh George Bush said you have a with us or you have a terrorists." And again it became binary. It became one or oh, uh, black or white. Make your choice. Choose your side. And then then we had a kind of culture develop and we had the financial crash and then like four lines came out in the wake of that and and then in the last few years uh, but most people rejected that binary most people rejected good or bad with us or against us and then in the last five or six years maybe kind of five years post 2016 everybody's embraced for ideology like the left, the right, the UK, <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's either you're good or you're bad. And there's no in between and there's no gray and there's no nuance. Yeah. It's like, there's nothing, nothing's good. Nothing's bad. You either like Winston Churchill, bad, blah, 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 bad. This person, good. It's like, and nobody's willing to look at any nuance. And I heard this phrase it was like tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. And we are living in a time where nuance is, <laughs> so, like, but if you i don't even know who that's who, who i'm quoting no
0: but it's very true i think people forget that everyone's far from pure and actually yeah. you know both sides of the fence sort of bleed into each other at some point point.
1: and this is what four lines did so phenomenally well and like why it was so important and why more shit should be made like this I and mean, which is why what i'm trying to do for a job really is because i wanted like I want to say, that it's not black and white. You can't just presume good or bad. Like they are terrorists. They are the people who go and blow up, blow themselves up in a marathon. And obviously, the Boston bombings happened post this film being made. So, like Chris Morris invented the idea of blowing up the London marathon in in the film that somebody who may or may not have seen the film. I'm not, I'm not so different for a second. It was inspired by it, but somebody may have been, done it in the like they actually happened later on, but. You watch this film and by the time they blow themselves out, you go fucking hell it's not that straightforward is it and we're not like yeah fucking then, no way am I defending what we do." doing it's absolutely disgusting but maybe it's not just because those uh, scary angry brown people that the Daily Mail and the Sun have been telling yeah, me they exactly. are maybe exactly. there's a little bit more to it maybe it's a little bit more nuanced but now there's no nuance at all you have a good or you're bad <laughs> and the people on the right are saying that and the people on the left are saying that and uh so I think Four Lions is <laughs> has got an important message for
0: uh, the 21st that century. Let's roll but... that little bit higher.
1: Mate, <laughs> <laughs> right, it's gonna fucking choke me in a minute.
0: <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's finish on a light one then. What's your favourite fact or piece of trivia about the film? Well, I probably
1: uh, probably. Shared, uh, fair, f- f- demonstrated my ridiculous uh bit of nerdiness on four lions. To be honest, oh, it's not going to be a good point to because it's where I came up. It's where I said before, but it's got to be the fact that Barry. Was uh, radicalised by the fact that his wife was uh, fucking someone in my house while he was uh, listening in my shed, and I, <laughs> it's just it's just a ridiculously great character note. <laughs> the fact that they had that conversation—that's what he decided.
0: I found another bow one because they did a live, um, they did a live stream rewatching. There was uh, what's that his was face?
1: that was fucking. Yeah. I was listening to that. That. Beat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Here's a little bit of trivia. Here's a good trivia. Uh, 10 years to the day after the release of Four Lions was the uh, announcement of lockdown in 2020 and I was I was I was smoking a spliff in my bath watching a live stream when my friend texted me to say fucking hell we're locking down <laughs> there we go that's my personal trivia for four lions
0: <laughs> well nigel uh, nigel Lindsay. that's it he left his bag on a train and Kevan Novak was on a, a later train and Nigel's bag got put at Lost Property. So Kevan picked it up for him, but he called Nigel off the Lost Property phone, pretending to be the Lost Property guy, obviously <laughs> doing his, his phone jacker <laughs> shtick, just giving, just giving Nigel grief, kicking off and stuff. And then it got to the point where he told Nigel to sing.
1: <laughs> what, like you've got to sing to prove that it's your bag?
0: Yeah, yeah, something like
1: that. To be fair, man, he's absolutely brilliant. Okay, I, I would kill you, brother Omar. You? Yeah, I would. You
0: really? Yeah, I would. what would you do? I'd smash your head off with the thing. Yeah? Yeah? You no know I'd do? I'd grab one of these hooks, man, and <laughs> dig it in your belly and rip your hooks out, spill all out on the would floor, you? like Mortal Kombat. I'd, I'd fucking... I'd tear this, guy. Yeah? And I'd fucking run you over with tractor. Now, Mr Greenough, you're a man who's more than familiar with stars. Yeah, constantly. <laughs> Loaded with them however on flicks and scoops we don't subscribe to this frankly outdated rating system we classify films by scoops so what i'd like you to do is rate f- the film out of five scoops so matthew Greenoff is going to give four lions five scoops i can't really give it anything else it's a resounding five from me if you have, if you want me back we
1: can choose it we, we can choose a terrible film if you ever have me back and i can <laughs> i can wax as lyrical about something
0: i hate but Four Lions is a solid five. This is much fun to be had at that. Before we sign off, do you just want to give us a rundown of where people can stalk you online?
1: Uh, yeah, well, the best place to stalk me is probably through my theatre company's uh, stuff. So we are Wound Up Theatre. We are at www.wounduptheatre.com, at Wound Up Theatre on Instagram and on Twitter, and at Wound Up Theatre Company on Facebook. Come check us out. We're, we are currently... Like publicly inactive, but we've got stuff probably not long and we're making a new piece of theatre in twenty twenty two, but we might be making some stuff a little bit earlier, depending on how things go and the reopen, how that cracks on.
0: Nice. Well I'll be keeping tabs on your T V show. I expect you to give me a call when you need a <laughs> a camera assistant or some shit. Yeah, man, definitely. Sweet, well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, man.
1: No, it's been really I'll great uh, seeing see you.
0: you. Probably 2023 whenever whenever I'm allowed back in the in the bloody UK.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully it'll be the summer.
0: Take it easy. You do
1: bye
0: Ah, friends. Thanks again to Greenoff for joining. And as I mentioned at the start, we're planning the next pop-up ice cream event. So podcast releases will probably be a bit sporadic over the rest of the summer. Apologies. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter to keep abreast of what's happening. And as always, there's ice cream recipes and film stuff up on flicksandscoops.com if you want to kill some time in between episodes. We haven't decided which the next episode will be because we've got a couple in the bank. So throw caution to the wind and listen anyway. See you next time. Now it's time for ice cream.
1: And get it right here. Ice, 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 ice cream.